Welcome, everybody, to No BS with Brian and Susan. What a wonderful day it is. This is a very special episode. Normally, uh, Susan and I have a lot of fun on here. We're entertaining. We like to talk about the comedy and the romance. But today, uh, we're, we're going to get serious with you. Right, Susan? Yeah, yeah. This is a serious movie we're about to discuss. Right. We, we, we wanted to talk about it. Uh, Dara of Yasanovich, um, this a uh, story that uh, took place during the Holocaust. And, you know, that hits clo- close to home for me, especially. And um, I imagine for Susan, but we I had to talk about this film because it hit us in a way. And we have a very special guest with us uh, today. Um, we have We have a Holocaust scholar, a professor, a rabbi, and a historian, a, a legendary historian, who advises on films, joining us today on the podcast, uh, Dr. Michael Berenbaum. Welcome to the show. Happy to be with you. Good afternoon. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, Dara of uh, Yasinovich and all of that and some Holocaust studies and whatnot, but let's start at the beginning first. Um, I also have a, a, if you're broadcasting for the Dallas area, I also have a very special connection to Dallas. Oh, yeah which is that I was one of the creators of the Dallas Holocaust and Human Rights Museum. Oh, oh. Wonder, and I've been there. We are... Um... Well, that, that, that was... Uh, uh, we were involved in the conceptual development, the design of the museum. No, and, worked, and it's... I worked on that for three years, yeah. That's really? Awesome. It's beautiful, too. It's beautiful. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that because I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, let's... Let's start at the beginning. Where, where in life uh, did this take you on their path of Holocaust studies, becoming a professor and a rabbi? Where was that spark? Where, where, where were you? Well, I grew up in a very special environment, but I didn't. But you know, when you grow up, you grow up. It's the only world you know. You don't realize how special it was. Uh, I grew up and was sent to Jewish day schools at a and Hebrew-speaking Jewish day schools. So I spoke I spoke a Shakespearean Hebrew, and my Shakespearean Hebrew is that I asked for directions by saying, if your heart inclineth in my direction, would you kindly indicate to me, my humble servant, what is the proper path upon which one should uh, go to reach his anointed destination? <laughs> now, my teacher's tended to be two types of people. They were either refugees, meaning people who had come here in the 1930s escaping uh, Nazified Europe, or they were Holocaust survivors, but we didn't know that. We had only heard certain words. We had heard camps, death, children, and we were the generation of ice cream and whipped cream who were supposed to make up for these lost generation and at our best we could bite their ankles but we were sort of they they constituted an authenticity that we as uh, an immigrant generation children of immigrant generation didn't quite have i also grew to grew up in a synagogue that had um a congregation of refugees german and belgium jews who had fled in late 1938, 39, and 40, many of whom were in the diamond business where they could escape with some of their wealth because they could hide it. If you had real estate, if you had a store, you couldn't hide it. But if you had diamonds, you can hide them in all sorts of of ways. Sew them into your clothing. You can keep them in your mouth, etc. And um, I never realized that that was my background. That was the normal world I grew up in. And I was working on an interesting question in in history, which is why did the Jews not go out of business after they were destroyed? Of all the ancient populations, we were defeated twice, exiled, and yet we continued to exist. 
when somebody turned to me and said, you know, you're not asking an ancient question, you're asking the most modern of all questions, which is your people have just suffered a massive defeat, the Holocaust, and yet they've come back. I said, look, I'm an ancient historian. I learned all these ancient languages. What the hell do I want to do with this modern stuff? Gave me a couple of books to read, and I found them fascinating. And I realized that subconsciously I was asking the question of my generation, which is, why do we continue? And then I studied it. I wrote uh, a doctorate on the question of, uh, of God and religious faith afterwards. And then I got a lucky break, which was to, I was a young academic. I was teaching at a, at a wonderful school, Wesleyan University. When I got an invitation from Jimmy Carter's White House to come down and to direct the President's Commission on the Holocaust, uh, I worked on, I was a deputy director and the lone staff person at that point. I worked on that and I came back about seven years later to be the project director of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and consequently created uh, a museum which many regard as now classic, uh, went to work then after, after in the 90s, I had a problem, which is what do you do after you've done everything you wanted to do, and you're too young and too poor to retire. So I decided that I really wanted the challenge. So I went uh, to work for Spielberg in the Shoah Foundation, which took the testimony of 52,000 survivors. And we did it in 37, um, um, in 52 countries and 37 languages. And we produced the greatest documentation of an event in video form that's ever been produced and, uh, and the like. And then around the year 2000, after we had done that, I said to myself, now what do you want to do when you grow up? And I still was too young and too poor to retire. And uh, I said to myself, okay, you've learned skills. Uh, I teach, I write, but I've been addicted to the creative enterprise. And I said, I have two skills. I know how to create museums and I know how to create films. And since then, I've been creating museums and films. Dallas was one of them. And it turned out in retrospect, if you look at the entire arc of my career, and then I want to get to Dara. If you look at the arc of my career, the very interesting thing is that I got to bring to the American people what could not be communicated to me in the years out immediately after the Holocaust. And then I got to allow my teachers and their generation to communicate and to record the stories they couldn't tell us and to create educational programs from it. So the director of, of, of um, uh, Dara uh, came to me. He's an old friend. Our wives work together. Came to me and, uh, you know, when you, when you go out with your, your wife and she's in a professional gathering, um, when you go out with your spouse, it happens to everybody. So the, the non-professional in the gathering tends to hang out with the other non-professionals in the gathering. We realized we had all of this stuff in common. And he uh, wanted to tell the story of Yasinovich. Yasinovich is a very unique concentration camp, death camp, really. It's five camps. It was created by the Croats, by the Ustasha regime, primarily to murder the Serbs, who were their ethnic enemies, but also to do for the Germans the murder of the Jews and the Roman Sinti uh, gypsies. And he always wanted to portray this because it's never been portrayed in a motion picture. And, you know, death of millions is a statistic, but the story of one makes it all come alive. And he came up with a tremendous approach, which is he told the story through the eyes of a young child. And that's what gives the film its unique quality. It's what gives it its haunting quality. It also enabled one other thing, which is that the tension whenever you create 
with regard to mass murder and like, the terrible tension is if you make it too graphic, the audience gets frightened and withdraws and stands like this instead of being emotionally open. If you don't make it graphic enough, you're not telling the reality of what happened. Using the eyes of a young child, he could show her response to what was happening, pull you away from the graphicness of the evil that was being experienced, but let you experience its impact in the shattering of innocence in the lost childhood of a 10-year-old child. And this is what gives the film uh, a very special character. And he did something else, which is, uh, uh, by the way, I wouldn't tell it to his face because you never praise somebody. Did something else, which is he wanted to get, when you work with children actors, a terrible problem. You either get a, a, a child actor who at 10 years old is 40 mm-hmm. or else you get somebody who's uncontrollable and uncontrolled because they're a child. So he did something very remarkable. He went to the towns from which these kids might have been taken to this camp, took kids whom we would call, and I'm not using it pejoratively, I'm using it descriptively, peasants, who live with animals and live with cows and experience, uh, you know, all of the, 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 the relationship to the land who are not linked to their cell phones and, and withdrawn. And he took non-professional actors. And consequently, um, they also created community of themselves because if my kids were to have a break, they would get on their cell phones and they'd look, uh, at their text and their messages. These kids created a community and therefore supported each other. And we'll t- I'll tell you one more story uh, about the making of the movie. One of the stars in the movie is an infant. Now, working with an infant is very hard. <laughs> very hard. And ev- nobody tells you this, but everybody never works with an infant. They always get twins. Because when they get twins, that means that um, one kid is awake, the other kid can be sleeping, one kid's in a good mood, the other kid's in a bad mood. So Gaga, in his usual manner, decides not twins, but triplets. Oh. And triplets. But he discovered that even identical triplets have different personalities. And one of the kids dominated, one of the infants dominated the film because he had a more public and more uh, outgoing personality. And it was remar- it was remarkable to see because you think of little infant twins as really being, you know, three of the same. Very different kids, very different wells, but it also meant uh, funny things. You need a kid to cry, so you take the kid who's crying. You need a kid to be calm, you take the kid who's calm. Uh, and, and, and he did one more thing in, in a film that I've never seen, and I've been involved with many films. He shot it in sequence. That's rare. Yeah. It's very, it, professionally, it's very, very rare. Uh, but it's also expensive because you move from scene to scene. But he did that in part so the kids, you know, the, the kids would not have to make the great transition in the narrative from the end to the beginning to the middle, you know, to coming through, uh, which professional actors do all the time. I mean, professional actors have shot the end of the movie before they've shot the beginning. They, you know. They, they can go to work and, and be doing one scene and then go to do something uh, very different. They can change their costume and change their personality. So he shot it in sequence. And part of that also gives a, a, a sense in the film of the movement of seasons. 
Because remember, winter is a different experience than spring or summer, especially in a camp where you're sleeping without blankets and, and on straw and without any protection. So that's part of, that was part of the excitement of seeing it done. Wow. So you were, and is this like the other films that you've advised on that you're a hands-on historian advisor to the director and the actors and you were there, correct? Well, I'll tell you a cute story. When I got married, my wife came to my marriage with a handyman. Really? I mean, you know, she had a guy, my wife had been single, uh, a a single woman, and she had a handyman whom she called whenever anything broke in the house. She marries a man, and one day her handyman says to her, um, Melissa, I want want you to call me before your husband starts to fix something. It'll be cheaper and quicker. Oh. Robbing me of my manhood, robbing me of my ability to protect, uh, to protect uh, my wife and you know, all, all of that stuff. By the way, not an untruthful remark. Yeah. Not an untruthful <laughs> remark. But, but not the kindest of remarks. <laughs> yeah. But, but true. <laughs> I, cer- I certify that it's true and that, that's right. So what does that have to People call me uh, to participate in movies, sometimes at the end to make sure that they don't get it wrong. And therefore we fix up, you know, uh, there, there, there was once, I won't mention the movie, there was once a movie about the Holocaust in Poland and they had all the Jews with yellow stars. That's a terrible problem. Jews in Poland didn't wear yellow stars in most places. They had to wear white armbands. So while it looked right to people who didn't know, it looked absolutely unauthentic to anybody who knew. And they had to digitally reconstruct, you know, take off the stars and digitally put on, put on the armband. And I said to them, I told the story of the handyman, said you would have saved a lot of money if you'd called me in at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. You were their handyman. Yeah, you were, you were I, the handyman. I was their handyman, which is why I... T- <laughs> Why I told why I told you the story. Yeah. Uh, Gaga had me there at the beginning, and I think that 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 um, he used me in part because we both know how to we both know how to explore the depth of evil in a way that makes it um, a, not palatable to a general audience, but visible by a general audience. Part of what I do in museums and films is to show the horrendous without becoming a chamber of horrors. Yeah. And part of what he wanted to do was to see if he could do that balance. So we saw, I saw the script in its evolution. I saw the film in its evolution. And he had somebody, we're good friends, and he had somebody uh, he could work with and trust on precisely uh, on precisely the question of how do you probe the depth? How do you do something that is historically truthful, but yet not create a chamber of horrors or a movie from which the audience is going to recall and go numb? And that's what he succeeded in doing. Yeah. And again, part of it also is that Yasinovich is unknown. And it so happened in the... Um, in the 1990s, um, I had a friend who was a Holocaust historian from Yugoslavia. Remember that, that this is the area of the former Yugoslavia. And he had written a massive book on um, Yasinovich, but it wasn't readable in English. So in my madness, I um, reshaped it into English and therefore knew quite a bit about Yasinovich, probably more than most non-Yugoslavian, most non-ethnics knew about uh, 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 Yasinovich and therefore could, uh, could be of enormous help. And remember, it's a complex story because you have um, – the Croats doing the dirty work for the Germans, 
the Germans asking them, why the hell are you killing the Serbs? We want you to kill the Jews and the gypsies. Why are you killing the Serbs? And also, they didn't have as sophisticated a uh, an operation as the Germans because they were new to it. As the Nazis, they were new to it. So um, it's a little bit more crude, a little bit more primitive. And we also have a, a, a an interesting role because there was a part of this was also a religious clash. So at different parts in the movies, in the movie, we have a very interesting thing in which you see Roman Roman Catholic nuns who are performing the job of re-education. And you normally think of a nun as being safe, secure, and sanctified. And here is a nun who is an agent of genocide, at least in the re-education part. As someone who has studied the Holocaust, seen all the movies, read books, had family not survive it, some that did survive it and hearing their stories. When I heard about this movie and watched it, I couldn't believe that I had never heard this story. And um, you being a historian all through your life and you knew about the story, but is it, it must be fascinating and almost maybe joyful to constantly hear new stories about this right well i, I wouldn't use the word joyful <laughs> okay not I, joyful I, I would use I, I i would use i would use the word um ever more interesting okay okay um and remember um tell you a story okay we had a a, a problem years ago how do you end the Holocaust Museum in Washington? And we were taking people off the National Mall, moving them back into a European context a half century earlier. And then we were going to discharge them from the Holocaust into the Washington National Mall. So we came up, um, we had many failures. And in the creative process, when you fail, that's good because it forces you to do something else, as long as you don't go through with your failures. And then we came up with an idea that came from a lousy New York detective series that was on TV many years ago. It was called The Naked City. And people my age, not your age, and certainly not Susan's age, (laughs) remember only one thing from The Naked City, which was the last line of The Naked City. They used to say there are 8 million people in this naked city, 8 million stories, and this has been one of them. When you think of how do you make such an evil real, it's not the statistic, it's not the volume, it's the single human story. And that's what makes Dara, again, the powerful thing, one human story. And the more we explore it, the more we explore it, the more we, in in a very real sense, the more we explore it, the more we understand that there really are millions of stories. We know the stories of survivors, but every victim had a story. Every victim had a name. Every victim had a history, had a past and the like. And what makes a movie so enormously powerful is it tells a human story in this case 10 year old girl and it tells many sub stories within it let's let's give two examples of these sub stories there's a scene at the very beginning of a movie in which a the people are being marched to a train to be deported and they pass by a woman in the field and the one woman is carrying her infant child and the other woman see in the field sees that and looks at her and looks with a little bit of compassion coming out of her eyes and this woman signals to her that she's going to place her baby down in the bush and this other woman is going to pick up the baby 
25 seconds in the movie. But again, you have to think then of what does it take for a woman to understand that she is going to be killed, that her child is going to be killed, and to love that child so much that to offer them life by putting them into the arms of a stranger. If you're biblically oriented, you think of the Moses story where Moses' mother cast him, what, into the Nile. Yep. And that gives you, again, it's a glimpse. And it's a moment. Not a major theme of the, not a major theme of the movie, but just powerful enough to shake you and shatter you. There's another scene, and here Gaga did something um, absolutely, um, he actually didn't do something brilliant. The actress did something brilliant, which is an actress read the scene and said, I have to play this role. Not a major role, but it's a role of a mother who refuses to be shipped off to Germany to work and leave her child behind. Mm -hmm. And then the mother and the child are both killed. Yeah. But the actress who played that was the granddaughter of the actual woman. Well, that's the only that's the only role she wanted to play. That's amazing. So her mother was the child was a child who was not killed. Her uncle was a child who was killed. Her grandmother was the woman who refused to go off and was killed. Wow. Um, you know, I, I thought some of the scenes in these films, like those, especially that one, they were just so shocking. And I mean, even just thinking about like the musical chair scene and in the basement, a certain scene. But I was wondering, is there a particular scene that you've um, put in a lot of your influence into that you wanted to get that's historically accurately right or well, yeah. The musical chair scene is actually historically wrong. Oh. Meaning that it's worse. Oh. The musical chairs was originally played with children. Oh no. Uh, now we discussed whether we could put that in with children. And decided that given, and we, we, based, we based all of this on survivor testimony and on historical documentation. And we decided that we couldn't really put children in. It would be too horrific for an audience to take. By the way, not too horrific for actual killers to do. But too horrific for an audience to take. And what did we do? we made it into an adult scene and notice we broke away time and again. We broke away time and again uh, because we only saw what Dara was seeing it, not what was actually happening, which gave the audience a respite. But remember also in a movie, if you make a very good movie, it makes the audience work. Let me give you a bad analogy, okay? If I'm going to do an, an erotic movie, there's a difference between an erotic movie and a pornographic movie. An erotic movie, it's sufficient for me to establish the first spark of the relationship, the first embrace, the third kiss, a moment in which the couple decides that they're going to be intimate and then perhaps a, a moment of intimacy and the audience in their imagination fills in every other moment and makes it come alive. Pornography leaves nothing to the imagination. And consequently, it, ha- it, it gradually becomes boring. When if you make an audience work and you suggest and you shape them, that's what makes great films films. That's a great analogy. Yeah, that is. Oh my. Yeah, I, I, I had no idea. I mean, I guess watching it, you know, looking back on that, I guess when I was watching it, I was like, it's as interesting that the adults are playing musical chairs, but I didn't think anything of it. So it was, man, just, it's just, you know, 
And, and the other the other scene that you mentioned, Susan, mm-hmm. the scene of the gassing. Remember that, in one sense, is um, far more primitive than the much more sophisticated way in which the Germans uh, gassed. They put the kids down a basement. They opened up a cyclone B can. They threw it in, and the kids were murdered. Mm-hmm. The Germans had it in a very sophisticated thing. They put them into a gas chamber. They never saw the people. They dropped the gas through the uh, chimney or through the side um, uh, element, and they didn't see it. Everything was done without them having to do it. Um, We took that from trial testimony because the man who did that was ultimately found guilty and uh, was brought to justice in one of the good occasions in which the perpetrator was brought to justice. So uh, again, you, you look at, at, at some of the scenes and each scene, almost scene by scene, has its own veracity. And again, um, I would argue, and here's where as a historian, you have to take a little bit of, I wouldn't say liberty, but caution. Uh, I have to remind myself, it's not a documentary. I'm saying it's based on real events. I'm not portraying events as they happened. In my scholarship, I do that. In my writing, I do that. In my documentaries, I do that. But here is something else. That's good. Is there is there something by being a part of these films, is there something that I guess you hope or wish audiences would take away if there's one thing? You know, um, I'll tell you what I'm increasingly feeling in this world. Um, I wish I were irrelevant. Now, when I say that, you look surprised at me. I study evil, and we portray evil, and we portray hatred and ethnic divisions and mass murder. And I wish we could look at that and say that couldn't happen. That's how stupid 20th century humanity was. We are much more humane, much more decent, much more sophisticated, much more um, committed to human rights and human dignity. Couldn't happen in the 21st century. But it does. Yeah. So our, our, um, our hope when we make these films is that we sensitize people to understand that ultimately beyond all the differences, there is common humanity that we have to have a respect for that, that we encourage human decency, protecting human dignity, guarding human rights. And really the most fundamental of all values, which is that, um, and we say this, especially when we deal with religious divisions, which is God created a multi, a, a, a pluralistic, multidimensional uh, reality in the world. And the religious differences must have a divine purpose, which means we have to cherish them instead of abolish them. Yeah. I, I'm curious, you know, because I did feel from this film, anytime I watch movies like this, especially this one, all I want to do is be like extra nice. I want more kindness in this world. It really does just, you know, you don't want to be mean to anybody, but uh, we've seen uh, films actually take a comedic approach on this subject matter. Films like um, Inglourious Bastards and Jojo Rabbit. And I was curious, what is your take on movies like that, that choose to portray, um, you know, the Holocaust and World War, World War II during in that you, you have to you have to have an awful lot of courage to do it with comedy, mm-hmm. and um, I, I, I'll tell you a, a story, which is that thirty five years ago, I was reading a, a book on the Holocaust, a diary, and I was laughing. And I looked at myself and I said, I'm not the worst person in the world. I study the worst person in the world. Why am I laughing? And then I realized something very interesting, which is that humor is one of the tools of the oppressed 
to gain control over their oppression. And that is that humor itself was used in the Holocaust as a means of, of, of dealing with what they did. So you had satire. You had jokes. Let me, let me tell you um, a Holocaust joke and you make sure it's not the only segment you play. But a Holocaust, <laughs> a, a Holocaust joke that really could be a commentary on our world, unfortunately, all too relevant. Four Jews get together. One says, oi. The other one says, oi, oi. Third one says, oi, oi, oi. Fourth one says, gentlemen, if we're going to talk politics all day, I'm leaving. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> now, again, that, that, sadly, I say, I don't want to compare our world to that world. But right. sadly, I, sadly, I say, right, you guys are, 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 are in Texas. Two weeks ago, that could have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What what could be your what could be your response to the events you experienced a couple of weeks ago? Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Shell, <laughs> so if we're gonna talk about the ice storm and the loss of electricity and the absence of water, I'm leaving. I have that at home. I don't need to experience it there. So uh, true. So so you, you have to you have to understand that that, that so I'm afraid of humor in the hands of the in, uh, of the incompetent. And I am um, um, more tolerant of it in the hands of the competent. But remember, I, I, I'll give you another example, which is um, the more uh, I loved the first part of Life is Beautiful and hated the second part. Why? Because in, pre, in pre-Holocaust Italy, pre-concentration pre camp experience in Italy, you could protect yourself and everything else by looking at it as a farce. Nobody could have been able to maintain that in the rigors of the camp. And consequently, it gave a false impression. And then when, when he received the Academy Award and behaved in exactly the same way, that's when I really became against it because if you're using comedy as a tool and you're using it responsibly and in a very clear way, then um, that's all right. But when your whole approach is comedic, you know, um, I, I worked on a film in which Mel Brooks was interviewed and Mel Brooks said, Making a joke about the Holocaust, never. Hitler, let me go. <laughs> In other words, and, and Mel Brooks, remember, he did the producers. Yeah, spring He said, making fun, making fun of Hitler, let's go. Yeah. He said, that's, that's his tool. What is, what, is, what is Mel Brooks, what can he do? I would write about all of the details of Hitler, and Mel Brooks would pull him apart. Look at the great work, the, the greatest uh, early work on, on comedy was Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. Right. Right? And he showed what a force Hitler was. And this is before the camp, before the camps, before the destruction, and made, made total fun of him. And he even has a scene in which, it, uh, in which Hitler's balancing the whole globe and ultimately destroys it. Right? He's got the whole the whole world in my hands, and ultimately he destroys it. And, and therefore, comedy is um, is a tool in the hands of the master, but it has to be a tool that's 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 dealt worthily. Let me let me tell you a second uh, one, which um, is a historical uh, historically true statement that actually happened. Kid is asked in the Warsaw Ghetto, what would you like most of all if you were Hitler's son? And he says, I'd like to be orphaned. No. <laughs> yeah. Now, you're, you're very smart. 
but I can give you a week to think of a better answer, and that's about as good as you can do. <laughs> and what is yeah. he doing with his humor? He's he's killing Hitler in his imagination. And I have to tell you the story. I, I was in what is Inglorious, by the way, I, I, I have to tell you with Inglorious Bastards, mm-hmm. um, I worked on a film that tells the true story of the Jews who, um, of the German Jews who went back and served as part of the advanced intelligence unit, part of the uh, interrogation unit, served as mayors of small German towns during occupation. It's called About Face, about German Jews who went back, uh, who came to the, fled to the United States in the 1930s, went back, young German Jews, went back in the 1940s to serve as advanced intelligence units of the U.S. Army. Among them, by the way, was no less a figure than Henry Kissinger. Oh, okay. Ended up being the mayor of a, of a, of a small uh, German town. Uh, but they, and, and they told um, whoppingly funny stories. Um, one guy was interrogating a fellow from his own hometown who didn't know who he was, a general from his hometown, and began asking about specific families who lived in the town and knew people on the block in which the general lived. And the general said, and he didn't realize that, the, 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 that he was being bugged, general said, my God, if he knows that much about that town, there's nothing to hide from this guy. <laughs> so I might as well might as well speak, but the point being, and, but in Glorious Bastard, I was in the theater when it opened, oh. and the father of the lead actor who assassinated Hitler, who was no less than a Harvard professor of psychology, jumps up and cheers as Hitler is assassinated, <laughs> and then writes an article: "My boy killed Hitler." Uh-huh. And he, real, he realized that what it was was the ultimate dream, the ultimate fantasy of every Jewish boy growing up was to have the opportunity to kill Hitler. And if not me killing Hitler, then at least my son killing Hitler. And that's what they did. So uh, it takes an enormously deft touch to be able to do, do it. And look, in some comedy makes you embarrassed at the comedy. Think, think, for example, of Larry David. Larry David, sometimes you're angry at yourself laughing at Larry David because comedy is usually the tool of the oppressed for dealing with their oppression. Here's a billionaire who's feeling himself oppressed by everyone and everything, no matter who they are. So that's the limits of comedy with regard to the Holocaust. With regard to Hitler, that's a different story. And I I take Mel Brooks at his word. And it was interesting to see his face respond to this. We did not have comedy in this film. And um, I'm not sure I would have trusted my judgment on comedy, period, except uh, like like, uh, Potter Stewart, I know it when I see it. Yes. Wow. That's great. No, I'm uh, glad you mentioned that. Um, I, there is one specific thing uh, that you wrote that I really love. And I think you wrote uh, the history we inherit is complex and the task of making sense of that history is all important and urgent. Um, And I mean, I think that is as relevant as relevant, especially now as it was when you wrote it. Correct. Sadly. (laughs) <laughs> Sadly. So look, look, that's that's that um A, I'm happy that I wrote that. And um I stand by I stand by writing that. One of one of look, what I'm trying to do with all of this is to find a way to communicate the reality of what I know happened. And one of the things I'm grateful for God God is to give me a way to help him with all of his enormous skill and the like, help him be able to shape an experience that allows you entree into the inner chamber of a concentration camp of five concentration camps, one of which was a children's camp, 
The other was the site of um, what we would normally call burial, but the killers always called body disposal. And we see all of those elements involved, and we tell it in a moving, coherent story that will bring the audience with you. And for that, um, that's what I think the power of this film is. Yeah. It is. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like I said, Dara of Yasinovich is a wonderful, heartbreaking, but very important and poignant movie. And I just hope that people see this and so they can learn about this slice of history that kind of goes under the radar, I imagine. And for no, I, for, and I don't know why that reason is. It's also still contested history. Well, is it, well, isn't the Holocaust still contested to some people, though? Isn't that making the, the, Look, the, the Holocaust, we've gone through a couple of stages in the Holocaust. One of the most frightening things we saw on January 6th was the fact that we've gone from those who want to deny the Holocaust to those who not only want to repeat it, but want to expand upon it. Yep. And yep. that is, there was uh, the, the guy who had the Auschwitz staff member Yep, and, and in the, the, the shirt that, that says six million wasn't enough, right? I, I'm oh. not sure. I'm not sure if that's not an urban legend. In other words, I, I haven't seen that. I, I saw the shirt. I absolutely you, saw it on television. The, I, haven't, yeah. I haven't seen the shirt. If you can figure out where where you saw it, I will use that. But six MWE. Yeah, does again not that the Holocaust didn't happen, but uh, unfortunately Hitler was not successful enough. Mm-hmm. And that tells us something very sad about our culture and our moment in history. Yeah. Because we used to say never again. Mm-hmm. And we should mean never again, at least not with my consent, not with my agree- agreement, not with my indifference, not without my protest and not without my outrage. But this says it wants to repeat it. That's a horrendous commentary on our time yeah 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 hopefully we won't have that (laughs) yeah i hope not either oh my goodness um and one of my last questions for you uh dr barenbaum is i guess out of all your studies and all of your testimonies that you've had is there one particular story or moment that stuck out that has not been covered yet that you want to see made with your help on the big screen? You know, every, <laughs> the, the, ans- the answer to that is every day. This is what uh, gives me the unending, um, the unending um, interest in what I'm doing. Uh, I'm at home um, now for the last, uh, uh, more or less year. Mm-hmm. I guess it's, it's a year. And as my wife uh, has said, um, my the books were invading my home. <laughs> I'm, I'm out in the, in the back in the back house. Books are invading my home, so I have uh, four books right here. Uh, one is a brand new book by a colleague of mine, Wendy Lauer of the Ravine, that is built off one picture of one murder in one town. And one photographer taking the picture, uh, taking that picture, who had gotten a wonderful camera and went with it. I'm having here a, um, uh, uh, another book about the uh, Jews who came from um, Germany and resettled in Washington Heights and the nature of their community. I have a, um, uh, a third uh, book here. I have a, a a peculiar thing. My my wife, who um, is overexposed to the Holocaust because of of my work and the like, wakes up on on Sunday morning, takes out the Los Angeles Times, and sees the story there of a woman um, uh, by the name of uh, Marion Ein uh, Lewin. Uh, as a uh, three-year-old in this Dutch costume. 
And what does the picture of her in a Dutch costume represent? We ends up we know Marion Einloin. She and her twin brother were were um, had nanny who um, was so could no longer work for a Jewish for a Jewish employer in 1942 because nobody under the age of 45 could no woman Aryan woman under the age of 45 could work in a Jewish household. But she was so close to these children that she named her eldest daughter Marion. And um, Marion Ein uh, uh, Lewin was reunited with the family of her nanny, who had heard of her. She didn't know that she didn't have a memory of the nanny. She was two years old, three years old, and she ended up being one of the youngest. Um, Girls at Bergen-Belsen being there under three and under four uh, and the like. And all of a sudden, uh, we sit there. We know the woman. Uh, we know her as a, as a mature, very sophisticated, very accomplished adult. And here we're seeing her as a three-year-old in her Dutch costumes that had been made for her by the nanny. And they were a very specific Dutch costume made only in one region. And the kids were dressed up in this. And all of a sudden, we discover how she then gets reunited with the woman who so deeply loved her that she named her oldest child after her. Wow. Something she did, something she did not know until she was a woman in her late 70s, early 80s. So there are stories every day which is part of what um, what keeps me um, vitally interested in all of this. Story after story after story, uh, moment after moment after moment. Well, That's why I find my work absolutely fascinating. And that's why uh, I continue. Because I really think that this is important stuff and I hope that I can make a difference. I wish I had made a greater difference. And I wish I had bequeathed to my children a better world than the one they have. Yeah, I, yeah. I hear you. Yeah. I'm there with you. You have made a difference, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I have. think you have, definitely. <laughs> well, again, you put your finger in the dam and keep it from overflowing. That's all. <laughs> there you go. That's, yeah. that's, um, what we're, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. This film alone is just, it already is making a difference for the people I, who watch it. I believe that. I, well, I urge, I urge your audience to watch it. It's really worth your time. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Dr. Berenbaum, is there anywhere uh, that you're online or a book that you've written that you want to tell everybody to go buy or read or find you, contact you, yeah. take one of your classes? Well, I, I, I have... <laughs> You know, I, I've had a I've had a variety of careers. So I, I've written, uh, you know, an 800 book with 400 pages of footnotes that I don't urge your audience to buy, except for the three chapters <laughs> who may be listening. Uh, my basic history of the Holocaust is called "The World Must Know." About uh, it's a, the history of the Holocaust is told in the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and despite the fact that I wrote it, I still think it's probably the best introduction. So the Holocaust you can find. Great. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful talking with you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you.